Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletaub from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Philadelphia is Melanie Sponholtz. Melanie is Chief Compliance Officer at WCP Healthcare. And joining us from Charlotte are Nick and Gio Gallo. Nick is Chief Servant and Co-CEO at Compliance Line, and Gio is Co-CEO and CTO for Compliance Line. Uh, Melanie, Nick, Gio, first, thank all three of you for being here today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Very glad to have all of you and excited to talk about the topic we are, which is compliance budgets. I've done a lot of podcasts and frankly, I I don't think that I've done one on securing budgets before. And I think it's a topic that's long overdue. Uh, Melanie, why don't we start with you? What historically have you found has made for a strong compliance program budget proposal? Well, so I think this is a trick question because I think <laughs> I think historically there have not been strong compliance budget proposals. And even just hearing you say that you can't think about talking about this before, I mean, that's why, right? I, I have worked with many companies at this part point in my career, and there are oftentimes compliance leaders who have never had a formal budget when I first encounter them. They're kind of an afterthought or ask us if you need something this year, um, but they're not treated with the same formal budgeting process as other people in the organization. And then the other thing, um, you know, that that I think this leads to is the reason behind that is that we're seen as a cost center. And, uh, you know, we've spent a lot of years seeing ourselves that way. And so we don't confidently speak up about the resources that we need. So I think historically there have not been strong budget proposals. <laughs> yeah, it's um, that's an interesting perspective. And, and you touched on something that we, we haven't come across strongly and is positive, which leads to a thought I had, you know, what have you seen in terms of common errors, uh, you know, points that could weaken the proposal? Well, I mean, I think I kind of, you know, stuck my toe in that water with the, you know, seeing ourselves as a cost center. And I think that is one of the really common errors. And Nick and Gio and I were, you know, we were chatting about that this morning about how, you know, people go in almost with a a sense of being apologetic, asking for their, their uh, budgeting for the year and compliance. So I think one common error is just not knowing your own worth and the worth of your program and and feeling empowered to create a budget based on the resources you need to do the work that needs to get done um so i think one that is that is the biggest common error is just not going into it with that you know sense of worthiness and budgeting just like finance would or marketing would or operations would um and then also that whole uh you know, looking at it as just uh, we're here, we're just here to keep you out of jail angle to why you need the budget, that you're just trying to prevent pain as your only point. And Nick, Nick, t- talk about your your triad, your your triangle here, because I think that illustrates it really well. Yeah, people do things for one of three reasons. This is why we buy everything. And that is to avoid pain, to conserve energy and to seek pleasure. So it's some mix of all those things, and that's why we do anything that we do, and that's why we buy anything that we buy. Ethics and compliance historically has focused on, to Mel's point, that one piece of the puzzle, which is pain avoidance. And while that is sort of a valid piece of the puzzle, it's very one-dimensional. 
And, you know, when you couple that with what Mel alluded to, which is what Gio and I call the uh, big dollar fallacy, which is we think that these dollars that we're asking for are so big or the bit, the budget we need is so big when in fact they're crumbs on the table next to the plate of uh, food that, the, you know, the board is uh, eating off of. Um, it creates this really kind of dangerous dynamic for ethics and compliance to, you know, create this self-fulfilling prophecy where they are still stuck at that sort of cost center table. Yeah, as you're saying that, you made me think of two things compliance people have told me through the years. One is Steve Priest, I'll never forget, years ago saying that the compliance budget is a rounding error on the audit budget. And, exactly. Um, Huge it's point. It's one of those. Yeah, and I think it is something we should be thinking about. And uh, just by chance, last week I recorded a podcast with Amy Barnard Bond on having uh, difficult conversations. And she one of her tips is always communicate in these situations with benevolent, positive intent. And I think a lot of it is what, Melanie, you were referring to there is don't go in apologizing. Say, look, this is what I'm doing for the good of the organization. Now, Nick, let, let me follow up with you on something. You know, These days, there's a huge push for more data. How can compliance teams leverage their program performance data to, to make the case for greater investment in the compliance program? So I think you're gonna see throughout this conversation that everything we're talking about is little tweaks. They're little tweaks to the program and they're little shifts in mindset that are going to allow us to make that bigger impact. And so the little tweak to the mindset here is that, you know, think about a poker player. How is it that the same guys win the World Series of Poker year after year? Is it just that they're so lucky or is it that they know how to play the hands that they're dealt? Well, it's obviously the latter. So if you, can understand that you can win any pot with any hand that you're given, then you now can start to look at any of the numbers that you're presented with, good or bad, to leverage those to create the kind of uh, program in the future that you need to drive toward. So if it's bad numbers, then you can say, listen, these numbers are bad, and um, as I benchmark against other companies in our space, they should be two, three, four times higher. We need to, you know, this is creating a massive risk for us. You know, how do we leverage our, our, uh, our risk assessments or, or, or any of these things to kind of start to see around the curve. And Geo has a really great talk track about that sort of future casting and using those things to start anchoring folks to the type of program that you're going to need three and four years down the road. Yeah, I would just, you know, first, uh, you know, I, I do two things before that future casting. One is realize that you're not hampered by the data that you have. If you think that you're not getting your budget because you don't have good enough data about how well or poorly yeah. you're doing, you're playing this game wrong. So get your get out of that mindset because it's about what you can achieve, not what you're already achieving. And that can be supported with data. The second thing is you have to understand that this request needs to be driven by what you already know, regard, regardless of whether you have an 85 point slide deck or really fancy pie charts about what should happen in your compliance program, you know what you need in your compliance program and you should present it with that conviction. And when you get out of that kind of being constrained and limited by what you can present and get into understanding that you have the vision for your compliance program and the board or the CFO or whoever it is, is gonna respond to that vision that you have, well, then you can get into that future casting and then you should say, hey, I can show you where we are right now. But what's more interesting is to talk about where we should be from a resource or, uh, you know, headcount allocation or from what we're producing. Here's where we need to get to. And that's an extra 300,000 or $3 million or $30 million in budget. I'm not going to ask for that right now. I'm going to ask for 5% of that to take the first step. But let, I'm just going to let you know that we're going toward this vision and this is where we need to go. If you present it in that context, then it's not about justifying your existence with hopefully enough data 
data points so that people don't, you know, cut your budget. It's about saying, hey, I'm I spend all of my time in this domain figuring out how to run our ethics and compliance program well. Here's where we need to get to, and here's the first step on that journey. Well, and it also I think changes the dialogue a lot because it's no longer about the sort of cost center things that you need to keep the doors open. It's about goals and how you achieve them and how the organization achieves them. And that's important because that's how boards and leadership is more used to thinking and probably likes to think about goals rather than what it costs to just keep the doors open. So Gio, let me follow up with you then. What's the best way to respond though when facing pushback? Even when you have the best of goals, people are still gonna say, well, do we really need that resource to get there? Yeah, I would say three things. Don't freak out, anticipate it, and give an honest answer. So the first thing is you need to, you know, we were talking about this with Mel. Mel has a great history of getting compliance budgets approved. And when someone says, well, hey, do we really need to do that? Hey, can't you just do that with one person or whatever? Don't freak out and think that that's an indication that your whole request is going off the rails. It's not. It's just a normal thing that someone tries to, you know, push push this table and see if this this table has strong legs in it or if that stool is gonna fall over. So just get ready to handle those, the objections. Brings us into the second one, anticipate it. So know that you're gonna make a pitch and some people are gonna wanna say, hey, how about this or that and get ready for some of those and you're gonna be caught off guard by fewer of those. And third, just answer it honestly. So you know when you get that pushback, then give them the answer, you know, answer their question, but tell them the reason why you have conviction about this. You don't have to get hung up in saying, oh, well, give me a couple of years, I'll get some more data for you. Say, yeah, that's a concern, but look at the broader picture here. Or yes, you know what? We might be able to do this with fewer people, but we're not gonna do it as well and doing this thing well counts. You have, you know, if you anticipate those, you can say, yes, we could, you know, uh, just cancel our compliance program for a year and we might not get thrown in jail right away, but that's not the game we're playing. We're playing a strategic game to support this entire company with a strong lattice work of programs and principles and data that support an ethical culture. And that's the conversation you need to keep bringing it back to, not getting hung up in one person saying, hey, why don't you do that with a contractor and you can save 20 grand or something. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what we were talking about this morning too, is that I think, you know, compliance stresses people out for many reasons, right? <laughs> and so, I think if you can approach these meetings with just that calm and confidence and I I need, you know, this clear set of resources so that I can take care of this for you so that you don't have to worry about this angle. You know, this is what I need to get this job done. And you kind of have that calm, cool, confident, I've got this um, approach to it. I mean, I know that sounds kind of flippant or simple maybe, but it, it really does work. <laughs> well, and it doesn't because, you know, in truth, people want to have their shoulders lowered. You know, they don't want to have to feel all tense and tight. And if compliance can be the vehicle for making people feel calmer and making them feel more secure in their work, that's a great asset to have. And it leads to a question as a follow-up to all three of you is, you know, when presenting the budget plan, are there other ways to make it more sellable? We, you know, we've talked about giving people the ability to relax and to have more confidence. Are there other things you can talk about like ROI or anything else? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, um, if you don't mind four or five Xing, uh, 
the time of this one. We're happy to kind of dive <laughs> in on this one. Yeah, let's just do it. Uh, let's just quickly yes. phase into a three-hour <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah, this will be a six-part uh, series. Um, so I think this is a deep conversation, and I think there's a lot of different facets of it. Um, I think the quick answer is uh, absolutely yes, and I think it kind of comes down to that mindset shift. Um, and it's going to bring together a lot of the things that Gio and Mel have sort of uh, talked about it and alluded to. And I guess what I'm saying is we need to be comfortable taking credit and bringing into the ROI discussion things that are not directly affected by us. We have a massive indirect uh, impact in our organization. And those are all super valid pieces of the puzzle to be incorporating into the numerator of our ROI um, you know, discussion. And so those are things like employee engagement. Those are things about turnover, not just relegating our conversation to, um, to the risk, to, to the risk piece of the puzzle or the pain avoidance piece of the puzzle, which is not really that sexy. It's not that compelling. It's not that, um, exciting. We need to bring a little bit of excitement into our ROI discussions because like we always say, logic makes you think and emotion makes you act. And, you know, you said something interesting, Adam, you know, uh, it's great when compliance can be that shoulder lower or whatever you said, like re a, a relaxant to the organization. I agree 100%, but we have to kind of channel some of the Mel and energy to come in there with some confidence and some of that calm because we're never going to achieve that end if we're coming in all tense and all nervous about asking for the dollars that we know we need. Yeah, and bottom line is that nervousness ends up looking like doubt and lack of confidence totally. versus saying, hey, here, I'm here to help. This is what we want to do. This is how we're going to get there. And this is the resources that we'll need. Well, uh, Melanie, Geo, Nick, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletaub from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective. <laughs>